This is a Design for Living Big Book Meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. My name is Julie, and I'm a compulsive overeater and your chairperson for today. To open the meeting, let us have a moment of quiet meditation, followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. So I'd now like to welcome Ruth. Um, please unmute. Welcome Ruth to the to the meeting. And the chair is yours. Hey, I'm Ruth. I'm a compulsive eater. Um, briefly, I started attending OA in 19, well, August 20th, 1982, and I got absent in on November 15th, 1986. So I've been absent 36 years. Um, I heard a speaker once say, well, how come you've been absent for so long? She had like 30 years. She goes, well, I haven't died yet. I'm not that Anyway, so I'm blessed. Um, I will say that if you notice, there was a four-year where I was self-willed and riot. It wasn't the program's fault. And, uh, you know, I got abstinent, but I didn't stay abstinent. And then somebody after a meeting said to you, you ought to, you ought to go and, and spend uh, some time with these two men in AA called Joe and Charlie uh, go to a weekend retreat. I, I hear there's one coming up. And so um, 200 miles away, great. So we got in a car. We went there and spent the weekend. Uh, I left there and I got it. I understood the big book. I got it. And it's no coincidence I've been absent since 1986. So I give, um, I give the original 100 all the credit to write this book. I believe it was divinely inspired. The first 100 recovered members of AA, and to these two recovered, they've long since died, um, give them credit for carrying the message to all the people in AA. So if you know of Joe and Charlie, if you heard, you can hear their tapes. They're all over the world. Um, you'll hear a little bit of them. So in this program, not only do we um, take information and uh, uh, spread it around, it's highly encouraged. So uh, so I can honestly say 95% of what you hear, I've already heard from somebody else. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I mean, I have a little bit, but it's really mostly all those that came before me. So I want to always honor them when I begin my talk. Anyway, so give a little real brief, where, where is the doctor's pain? What is it about? Uh, so I like what Joe and Charlie said. They said this book first is a textbook. You don't just skim and go into what part you'd like and read that, say, let me try that. No, it's a textbook. So you start at the beginning, and each thing builds on what is previously in this textbook. So if you wanted to understand algebra uh, but have not opened the book before page 58, where it starts saying, really, we've seen a person fail, you're trying to learn algebra, and you don't even know how to add and subtract yet. So we need to follow one after the other. Each step is to be worked. When it's done, we go to the next step. Um, anyway, so, um, so let's look at the big book. It's a textbook, so we're going to start at the beginning, and we're going to start with um, doctor's opinion. Now, doc, the step one is doctor's opinion, which is done by Dr. Silkworth, who's the one, the doctor that treated Bill Wilson. And then Bill Wilson, when he wrote this first draft, and you'll see this book, first they'll tell you, then they'll give you an example. Then they'll tell you step two, then they give you an example. They'll tell you step three, they'll give you an example. So you, if you don't get it on the first go around, you'll get it on the second. So Dr. Pinion says, what is the problem? And Bill's story, chapter one, tells us the example that shows exactly what that means. So when we look at the book, there are three questions we have to answer. The first question is, what is the problem? We don't know what the problem is. We don't know if we have it. So we must answer, what is the problem? And what is the problem is step one. What is the problem? Well, the problem is, and you can feel it's food or alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever it is, but the problem is that I am powerless over that substance and or behavior and I, my life is unmanageable because of that. So that is the problem. The first half of step one, we admitted we were powerless over food. That's the physical algae yielding a craving. 
and the second part that our lives are unmanageable is mental obsession that our lives are unmanageable so we have two parts to step one doctor's opinion will cover the first half of step one and then later there'll be more about more more about alcoholism and we'll talk about the mental obsession so we're going to today focus on the physical allergy yield and craving um, the second then question is what is the solution now I have the problem I'm in utter despair and hopeless if I'm not I probably won't stay absent because I still think I can do something but when I become hopeless and despair, I love it when I start working with a sponsoree, when they are just crying and it's horrible, and I think, yes, yes, this sounds like a good step one, because they are admitting. If you're just, well, yeah, I think I am powerless, eh, then you probably don't think you are, because it's kind of just like maybe. So um, that hopelessness, that despair, the consequence of that is you're going to say, well, what is the solution? Give me the solution. I have to have the solution. I, I can't do it. What is it? Well, the solution is a power greater than ourselves. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So that is the solution. We are the problem. A power greater than us is the solution. It doesn't have to be anything religious. It can be, but you can be an atheist and work this program great. But it has to be a power greater than you. And then, well, the third question that has to be answered is, well, how do I get the solution? And that is going to be steps three through 12. So, and it takes you through, by the time you get to 12, now you, you know, you have recovered. It mentions that right after it talks about step 10. Doing 10, 11, 12 every day, you have recovered. Now you can stop, rest on your laurels, as it says, and go back. But at that point, you've recovered. When it says recovered in this big book, um, sometimes in OA, people are confused by that. It's, well, I'm not, I'm just recovering. The people that wrote the book were recovered when they wrote it, and they have promised you, you will be recovered if you do what they say. So recovered means you recover from a physical allergy and a craving and a mental obsession. That's what it means. It does not mean that you have arrived. It's very clear on the bottom of 84, middle of 85 in the big book, it says, we are not cured. What we have is a day of the reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. So but recovered from that which got you here, which is step one. That means you do not have any physical allergy or craving at all. It's gone. It's over. And it will be in the first two to three weeks. You'll go through detox, withdrawal, and then it's done for the rest of your life. The second thing, those, that mental obsession, well, we'll have to work the next 11 steps. But that means you will not think to ever overeat compulsively. It never enters your mind. Seldom, if ever, does it enter your mind. The last paragraph in A4, the promises of step 10 tell you that. It promises you that. And so think about it for a minute. You, I came in just to lose weight. I admit it. I, I, that's why it took me four years. And then I said, well, I, I don't want to eat compulsively. I, I don't want to be fat, but I don't want to eat compulsively because that will get me fat. Okay, fine. But then I didn't want to think about eating compulsively. Oh, that never occurred to me at the beginning. And sure enough, that happened. And I don't know when. I know it was within the first two years of my abstinence, so I can confidently say uh, 34 years. I've not only not done the behavior, I've not thought to the behavior. I don't know when it was, but I want to make sure I err on caution there. Um, but it did go away. And so with that background, then let's go to doctor's opinion. So with doctor's opinion, uh, the man that wrote this, he... Um, I, I think he's a saint. I just want a background about Dr. Silkworth. He spent his life working with, it was 30, 40, or 50,000, I just don't remember the number, 30, 40, 50,000 alcoholics in his lifetime trying to help them. And his mission before AA came into being, he had a 2% success rate. Well, this is phenomenal. Nobody else even had 1%. He had two, so he was w way ahead of them. But imagine you are a doctor and you're a surgeon and 45, 49 of the 50 patients you do surgery on die and only one lives. You would just say, no, forget it. I got to go get another profession. But this guy stayed with this and just kept working and working and working. And he came up with something he believed what the problem was. And he just kept doing it. And he did this for a long time before Bill Wilson shows up at Towns Hospital where he was, where Dr. Silver was, was in charge of the unit there. 
imagine that. So first I have to give him credit that he writes this. He was doggedly doing this for a long time. And the second was he was not getting any support from the medical profession. They didn't believe his ideas at all. Well, of course, they only had maybe 1% success rate. Why would you believe him? And yet he persisted. He just knew the truth, even though he didn't know how to get the solution. And he also, in this doctor's thing, will not go and start talking about the solution. He notes it in just two words, but he won't do that because he is humble enough not to try to go and cover the part that is not his specialty. We will get that, and it'll be Dr. Carl Jung, and that'll be in There's a Solution because the solution will be in the chapter called There's a Solution, and it'll be on the page that's in italics as There's a Solution. I, I joke about that's hidden, so we won't find it. But, um, but he stays in what he knows, so... So let's go there. So with all these people he worked with, he found something, in fact, just way back history, the first time it ever was said that what the problem was was physical, there was a physical component to the problem, was a guy named Dr. Benjamin Rush. He, 1785, he said it, big famous physician here in the United States at the time. He just said it, but he, that, that's all that happened. But at least he thought something. So another 150 years have to pass before Dr. Silkworth you know, is now with Bill in 1934, gives it to Dr. Bill, gives it to Bob in 1935, and yes, we go on. So, um, so Dr. Silkworth had this idea, and the key is at the time, and we're talking about the 1920s and 1930s in this country, and it was really throughout the world as far as I know, um, the view was you uh, lacked willpower. Why don't you just stop drinking? I mean, how many times have the people on the line, somebody said, why do you keep eating that way? Why, why don't you stop? Or better, because I would hide my eating, how did you get weight on? I never see you overeating when I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, of course, I'm not going to show you the evidence. Um, questioning, not understanding us. Well, we're not honest with ourselves, so obviously we're not going to be honest with somebody else. But we have a problem, and we don't know to the extent. It's like an iceberg. We know the little tip of it, but we don't know what's below the surface of the water. We think, in my case, I, I don't know how I'm, I'm fat because I don't eat that much. That's how out of touch I was with reality. Dr. Silkworth says, contrary to all of this that's going on, the second one, I guess, would be, uh, you know, why, why, you know, um, why don't you, you know, find some, you know, some God or something, pray to God, get God to do it. You're, you're sinful. You're, you're not living according to your religion. And those were the two main things in the United States. You know, your, your thoughts are messed up. You need to just have willpower. You're, you know, you're not having something connected to help you and, you know, you're a mess. But nobody was saying there's a physical component to it. They, they just didn't get that. They didn't know it, weren't aware of it. But Dr. Silkworth found, and he mentioned in his story, that, that, and it's mentioned in more about alcoholism, that people would just say alcoholics would work with them, they'd stop drinking, but they, never, they couldn't stay stopped. And, and when they would start drinking, he'd ask, and um, what would happen was that when they asked him, you know, when he asked them, and they would say, I, I don't know, Doc, I, I don't know, but things were going fine for me. So it wasn't like they had hit this low bottom, they were losing everything. They actually gotten a little better in this little period of sobriety, and they still drank again. So it wasn't based on the external. The external wasn't always horrible. That wasn't always a direct connection. Um, the they, the, the people were feeling, and I, now we look back, arrogant and conceited because they'd had some sobriety but no recovery. And so they were actually feeling just the opposite, some of them. And so it had to be something more than uh, the thought process. There was something more that had to be the problem. Um, yeah, there was messed up thought. He could see that. But what was it? And his belief was there was a physical, there was something going on within the body that caused these people to drink again in spite of all of the thoughts and the words being said that indicated, yes, there was a problem. The body had to have some power over this individual that was greater than uh, the support from the outside, uh, the professionals, 
um, the clergy. There was something more. There was a physical component. And he didn't, he didn't have a, he, there was no of all the technology we have today, but he just knew that. He knew it. And the thing is now, you know, this is now, you know, what, 85 years later, that everything he said has, nothing has been proven to be wrong. Everything now, in fact, has now been proven, this happened in the early 60s, where they found a guy was doing a research project, needed some, um, you know, dead bodies to do autopsies to get his research done. And um, he was in a big city here in the U.S. And he said, hey, you got some bodies that are never claimed and you have to kind of find a place to bury them. You know, cities do that. We, they just don't talk about it. And, the, and the, yeah, yeah, you can have them. Man, we're going to have to bury them anyway. And he takes these bodies and he does this research. And he accidentally, which is, you know, that's where God remains anonymous, he found, you know, real proof in the bodies of certain ones that they were alcoholic. I delivered the destruction of the liver and all of that and then realized in doing more autopsy of that body and the brain that there was a different metabolism of alcohol in the bodies of alcoholics than there was in bodies that he was working on that were not alcoholics. He changed his whole research and then wrote that up to say, guess what? Well, Dr. Silkworth knew it. He just didn't have all that, that evidence, but he always knew. So let's just say he's got the answer. What is the problem? So when we look at what he writes, I'm not going to be able to cover every paragraph. We don't have time for that. But I'd like to cover two main paragraphs and go in great depth with them. This summarizes basically what is the problem. So let's go, if you have your big book, and it would be XXVII, or 28 Roman numerals. It'll be the last paragraph on that page, and it starts, Men and Women. You go to that paragraph. What we're going to study this paragraph this is, this is step one. This is the disease concept. This is the vicious circle. Those are the various terms to go by it. And if you don't believe this is true, either you're not one of us and you now can hang up and go do other things, or you're in denial because you are one of us. So let me read this paragraph and we're going to dissect it in great detail. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. I just want to note here, I read this for years. And I thought it said men and women drink essentially because they like alcohol. I don't. Even, I couldn't even read the book right. They're not. It's. They don't like the. It's not alcohol. It's the effect it gets me. There was an effect. There was something I got out of it that I had to have, and that's why I did it. And we'll talk about that more later. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they succumb to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful, with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this, peer, this person can experience an entire psyche change, there is very little hope of his recovery. So here's Dr. Silkworth describing what is the problem. So if you had a piece of paper and take it out and you can just draw this out, it's a visual. I like, I like visual as well as words. And this is something Joe and Charlie kind of laid it out. So if you imagine an old watch or clock, I know everything is digital now, but if you imagine, imagine that, and if you at 9 o'clock, we're going to go counterclockwise, as we go around the clock, and we'll be putting in the words of this paragraph. So at 9 o'clock, you simply write physical, you, you just write physical allergy. Physical allergy at 9 o'clock. So what happens, you take that first bite, in our case. You put that bite in your mouth, or it could be liquid. We've done liquid, too. Um, I had a sponsoree that wouldn't go buy a pack of gum. She would buy boxes of gum. And she'd put it in her mouth and chew it. And when she lost the sweet taste, she would then go and get an, and then put another stick of gum in her mouth. Um, so she was continually chewing the gum. She didn't even swallow it. But the sugar there, artificial sweeteners or sugar, was in her saliva and she kept swallowing it. And so that was getting her the effect that she wanted. 
So what I'm trying to say is it's not necessary to even eat the food or swallow the food. It, it's also not, uh, it also includes what you put on or in the food. You could have a very healthy food, but your ingredient or ingredients that you're addicted to, you're putting in or on it, and that's what you're chasing, not the actual food itself. So you put this bite in, and you have what they meant back in the 1930s here. It simply meant an abnormal reaction to. Dr. Silk, an abnormal reaction to. So when the alcoholic puts alcohol in their body, they have an abnormal reaction, which is they've got to put more in. And when we put a bite in our mouth, we have an abnormal reaction. We have to put another bite in. I've, I've, I, was, I remember I would be at events where they had a little, little bit of food and people would eat it, and they'd, then they'd, put, they'd take one bite and stick it, leave it over in the corner and never eat it again. That would drive me crazy. Why aren't you eating the rest of that? That's something sweet. Why can't you eat the rest of it? I'd be bothered they, they were not eating it, even though it wasn't my food. Because they didn't care for it. It just went by. Who cares? I mean, everything that was sweet for me, I wanted all of it, like right now. Um, but you have to have it. And even if you have something and you don't go out because of the weather, it's so horrible, that doesn't mean you, you know, you're great. It just meant God decided not for you not to kill somebody on the road with the weather was the way it was. And you just shouldn't go. But you're still thinking about it because your body is now craving it. And at 8.30, write the word craving. Stillforth causes the phenomena of craving. So what's the abnormal reaction? Craving. Your body has to have it. We're not talking about the thoughts now. The, the body is doing it. We'll talk about thoughts later. But the body has to have more. And they've done research to find out that sugar, that is metabolized different in us than it is normal people. There's the body's reaction that has to have it, and it cannot not have it fact, you know, the fastest bite that the um, normal person eats is the first one because they just start slowing down because they don't want more. Our slowest bite is the first bite because now we start, I would just cram it in and not even chew it properly and keep getting it into my body as fast as I could to get a quicker high. So at 8.30 is the craving. What then follows from that craving? What follows then is at 8 o'clock, they call it a spree in this paragraph. We call it a binge. Some people do a lot of grazing, but bottom line is it has, we say we're going to stop, can't do it, cannot do it. Um, and so at eight o'clock, it's the binge or slash spree. Now we're completely out of control. The body has to have it. And one of the things in the book, it has two questions that says, well, what do you know? What are the two questions? And I always start with people. Uh, to ask if you are one of us. And if we go to 44, we'll just read this on one, the fourth line on page 44. It says, if when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely or if when drinking, you, are, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. So the first, the two questions, once you start and, and can you stop when you want to? No, you don't have the ability to stop once you start. Second is, if you swear off, say I'll never do it again, you don't keep your word. If you have one of those two characteristics, you're one of us. If not, you may, you're not. You can stop when you want to. Well, then, okay. All right, so at 8 o'clock, you got the spree. Now you put your back of your hand on your forehead and go, oh, I'll never do that again. I mean, you're stuffed. It's like, oh, my God, I just can't believe that I did it again. So what you said in the paragraph says you emerge remorseful, swearing off that you will never do that again, right? So that's the next part. So at 7 o'clock, you emerge from remorse on a firm resolution not to overeat again. So 7 o'clock. Okay, as you go in the, around this vicious circle, you hit bottom at 6 o'clock. Now, some people think, well, it's at 9 o'clock and you take the first bite. No, here's where you hit bottom. When you hit bottom, you are restless, irritable, and discontented. That's the state you're in. Now, you've taken the bite. You have now had a binge. You have now re sworn off and said you'll never do it again, and now you you're you are you're restless, irritable, discontent. This is both the body and the mind. The body there is like restless. The body's restless. It's it's discontented. It is not doing well. 
and the thoughts aren't doing well because you want to have it. In fact, the more the time goes on since that last bite, the more the body will crave it because it's diminishing in quantity in your body. So now there's stronger body sensations to get more in, plus the mind is going through its gymnastics. You say, no, 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 no. And you really struggle. And sometimes you struggle and maybe you stay abstinent for a while. But it's not, it's not recovery because it's on, based on self-will. So what does happen eventually? Eventually, at 3 o'clock, you write, oh, so you write restless irritable discontent at 6 o'clock. Put it down there because that's where you're at the bottom. You have self-will, which will not succeed because you are powerless, and that's all you got. And the body is screaming. It has to get more. So with all of that, the mind then keeps going too. And so eventually the mind wins. So at 3 o'clock, right, mental obsession, mental obsession. And at that point, the mind overwhelms, the body is going through detox, and you've got to have your next bite. You've got to have it. So you swing back to 9 o'clock, Again, it's now physical, physical allergy. So that's the vicious circle. And this circle that you're in, starting at 9 o'clock physical allergy, then the craving, then the binge, then the swearing off, then the rest of the cerebral discontent, then the mental obsession, back to the first bite. This is the disease concept. This is the vicious cycle. This is step one. Now, the thing about this circle you're in there's, there's something about it. You would say you just trace that circle over. No, you do not trace the circle. What's going to happen is every time you go around it, it's going to be smaller and faster. It's going to get more and more. As you continue going around the circle, eventually you become the little black dot in the center. At that point, you're doing nothing but eating, trying to overcome and eating, just completely out of control. So it gets worse. It never comes out and as the joke is once you if you're a cucumber and become a pickle you can never go come back and become a cucumber this is the key that's so important you will never 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 get out of this circle once you're in it let me just say it again you will never ever 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 out of the circle once you're in it once an addict always an addict once a compulsive eater, always a compulsive eater. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. There is no possibility, nothing you can ever do, nothing that out there can do, your therapist, a pill, a doctor, friends, a clergy, it doesn't matter. Once you cross the line to addiction, that is you're in the circle, you will always be in the circle. There is no solution of self-will. And however you self-will to get the results you want. Control. Very important. If you're never out of control, you never attempt to control it. Because you're not out of control to attempt. The attempt to control means you've already crossed the line into addiction. There are people I work with who say, well, I'm doing well. I've lost some weight. I'm controlling. I'm doing well. I said, gosh, you're running around that circle. And maybe the first time you got in that circle, maybe it took you 10 years to go around it. Okay, it's a progressive disease. And it comes around seven. And, and you know, by about 20 years, you're, you're hard fast in it. You know, um, but that doesn't mean you're successful. It just means you're still going around the circle. This paragraph describes what is, the, what is step one, what is the, what is, uh, the vicious circle, what is the disease concept? You must admit 100% that's who you are. Now you say, what it comes out and you get to the point, you're 99.99%. You're doing good. No, you're not, because that 1% will still do it again. This has to be without any reservation. And you say, well, come on, all the steps, none can be worked perfectly. Absolutely, that's not true. If you go to the AA 12 and 12, and it talks about this on page, uh, it's in the middle of step six in there, and it's page, I think we'll get my book, I'm pretty sure it's 68, but it's right in the middle of, of step six. And it says that step one must be worked with absolute perfection, 100%. All the rest are ideals, and you strive for them. But step one is 
absolute perfection with 100%. That's not confusing. So, yes, you must do, you must believe this. Now, when we believe it, surely for me, I felt despair and hopeless. Finally, I admitted that I could not control. I had to accept I was a glutton. And that's taking step one. It's painful, but it's taking step one. So the second paragraph I want to look at, and let's go to XXX, which is 30 Roman numeral. And it's one, two, three, four. It's the fifth paragraph on that page. And it says all these and many others. If you go to that page, this is the second paragraph that we have to be no confusion and know what it's about. All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been, by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Again, it has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Now, Dr. Silkworth is clear. He knows it's the body, and he is telling us that we must have entire abstinence. There is absolutely no way from his experience, and A has confirmed it beyond question, that there is no, there is no possibility except entire abstinence. You can read a book. You can go watch something. You can go talk to somebody. You can do whatever you want, but you must get out of the circle. The only way you can get out of the circle is entire absence. Again, all that you cannot do without entire absence. That's required. Dr. Silkworth tells you, and I've already prefaced that this is based on him knowing the truth. And then, even once you find out it's entire abstinence, you also know you can't control outcome. And that's what drives you in despair to step two that says, well, yeah, you might get a day of some entire absence, but for you to now have entire absence and keep that for the rest of your life, you will need to deal with the mental obsession. Dr. Silkworth dealt with the physical allergy of craving, and now the mental obsession, the next 11 steps, will deal with the thoughts at 3 o'clock because the thoughts will still drive you back. Again, I told you, one-tenth of one percent will drive you back. And so the only way is a power greater than us that now we will do what we can to change our personality sufficient that that a power greater than us is now going to be in charge of our life instead of us and our attempts, which utterly failed. So what is entire abstinence? And this is interesting. I, you know, if I say, all of you go to the dictionary and look up the word entire, and you, I think most people understand what entire means. Um, entire means like 100%. It means absolute perfection. But yet it's an interesting, I've heard some interesting definitions of abstinence in program. And I can't find anything entire about their definitions, but it's their choice. I'm, I'm saying, telling you I work according to the big book. I'm not going to claim I have the answer for anybody else, but I have the answer for me. Um, and I have to go by that. So what is entire abstinence? Well, again, if we look at those two questions on page 44, if we swear off and we don't keep our word for the rest of our life, or we try to you know, stop when we want to, that is moderation. That's moderation. So here in the U.S., there are, are or were at least two treatment models that were used. First was the model according to the 12 steps, entire abstinence, whatever it is, can't ever eat it again. And the other was moderation. And there are a lot, and you can pay big money and go and try to eat it in moderation and control outcome. Anyway, I've not found that successful. And um, so we're working on this one here, the big book. So entire abstinence means you have to get rid of it all. Now, some people say, well, uh, you know, they come up with interesting ideas. So I'm going to simplify it, and this is now more than 30 years of sponsoring people, myself and others. I'm going to keep it very, very simple, and that's why people can't understand it, because it's too simple. But what I say is to anybody, if I start working with them, I want you to get out a piece of paper and a pencil or pen and just start writing. Or I guess you can type it up. 
just write it down. And I want you to not try to get outcome and write only words that try to get you a result that you want. At this point, just write down any and every food that that you, uh, when you start, you've sworn off certain things and you've not been successful, or you've tried to stop when you started and you can't moderate. You can't stop each time you want to eat it. Any and every food, just put it down on paper. You know what? And if you leave one out by purpose and you don't tell me, I'm not going to be less abstinent. But you will not stay abstinent if you don't put the put everything down. So just put it all down. And then get somebody that's recovered that can listen to you and look in and look at this list and say, what ingredient or ingredients keep popping up on this list? I mean, what is it that every time you're trying to get something from food, an effect produced now, I told you it's the effect. It's not the food. It's the effect that food gives you. The normal people don't go after that effect. Normal people just eat because they're hungry, physically, generally hungry, not toxic hunger. The hunger where we leave it, but it's, it's that toxic hunger where we think we're hungry, but we're really hungry for our fix our addictive ingredient or ingredients, not like normal people. So put it down and somebody will work with you and find out what are the ingredient ingredients. They'll find what it is. I mean, in cigarettes, it's nicotine. That's known, even though the tobacco companies here in the U.S. for decades claim they didn't know, but they did know. And the food industry, they know there are three addictive ingredients that they know, and they do their best to make sure they can get those into the foods. When I got abstinent, I had to eat, I'd have to eat something with that one ingredient, then I'd go eat something with that other ingredient, I had to go get something for the third ingredient. Now all three are always, almost always put in foods that are processed. That means manufactured by the food industry to maximize their profit. And so they are about making money. They don't know who you are and they don't care. They're just trying to maximize profit. And if they know they can get somebody hooked, they will eat more of their item. So they put it in. But you can actually have one or more of those three. You can have something different. I mean, there can be something added to this list. Nobody's questioning that. But I always listen. And let's say the person, just for the sake of argument, writes down 33 items. These are the things, okay? And as I listen to them, I hear them mentioning one of those ingredients 32 of the 33 times. So I ask them the question, what do you think? Do you think that's a problem? I mean, 97% of the time you're going for that item, you know, that ingredient. Do you think you got a problem? And they're going, yes. Obviously, my mind tells me that's clear. I, when I go, I'm gotta, I've got to have it. Okay, let's look at the other one. Let's look at the other one. And what then, yes. Yes, you know what the ingredients are. And so I say to the person, now I want you, if you're going to have a food plan, but you cannot have any of those ingredients in your foods in any form, in any way, at any time. Can't do it. Because for entire absence, you're entirely absent from the ingredient that's in that food item. Again, it could be what's on or in it, too. It doesn't even happen. I've had somebody, you know, oh, a baked potato, they say. Baked potato. Great, and put a little pepper on it and just eat it that way. You know, bake it up. And, and they were like, oh, my God, I can't do that. So they want to put some salt on. They want to put some sour cream on. They want to put some cheese on. And I said, well, what are ingredients that you're chasing? Because it's not that baked potato. Somebody said, I overeat everything. Oh, have you eaten, I don't know, steamed broccoli? I've never done that. I don't see that on your list. Um, so it sometimes is what you put in or on it. So entire absence means you find out what the ingredients are and you never eat those in any form in any way. And then the next thing I'll say, okay, in our country, it's the United States Department of Agriculture or USDA. And on that site, it's taxpayer funded. It basically gives what is proper nutrition, just basic nutrition, gives you what are proper portion sizes, just basic information that you can get. It's free. I mean, you can go pay somebody and they can tell you the same thing, but now you know. So Basic nutrition has to be followed at proper time, right? You, you don't eat once a day and, or six times a day unless you need to for some medical reason. Um, so you just create a plan that's got basic nutrition, proper portion at proper times, but you can't have the ingredients in it. That's entire abstinence. And um, sometimes that's just too pe- difficult for people, but it's the disease talking because there is a piece of them that wants to do it. Just started working with somebody, oh, and uh, 
I haven't got a call since uh, Monday, so I know what that means. Person's back in the food. Um, because we give it away. You don't want to call. I, I'm not going to scold you. I, you know, I messed up for four years, so I'm not, I'm the last person to do that. But can we now understand what is the problem, which Dr. Seelforth lays out perfectly, and he tells us to not have a physical allergy or craving, you must be entirely abstinent from alcohol. And, and people say, well, you know, alcohol, no, no. When they said entire, they meant, um, I had a, I had a spot to read. And she had a lot of addictions, food, alcohol, cigarettes, sex, and I'm forgetting one, about five of them, pretty hardcore. And um, so she was alcoholic. Had Anyway, food was kind of, she had dealt with the others, came in now working with me on the, her last addiction. And um, everything was okay, but she had gone to an event where, the, where she was there. They had uh, marinated the... Uh, the steak in uh, beer or liquor or whatever it was overnight and then they put it on the grill and it was part of what people could eat the meat that people could eat and um and she ate too much of it but she also why she was no longer sober because her AA sponsor said no you're not you ate something that was marinated in alcohol and when we talk about entire we mean entire you don't get to eat stuff that's marinated because you can't swear that it's completely all been burned off it, it doesn't. If there's certain things you we have foods where they um, make extracts for some um, spices that are used, and that's made with alcohol, so you can't have it. When they meant al- entire, they meant entire. And when you read, when I read some of the old stuff back in the 30s, the original hundred, they talked about that. They even said, "Don't drink the hair tonic." Back then, men would put hair tonic on their hair. It was not meant to drink for anybody, but they would drink because there was a trace of alcohol in it. Uh, they meant entire. And so today when we're talking about food, we, it means the same, entire. So, and people can get online, you can argue with me. Again, I'm not going to be more or less abstinent, but I'm telling you that's what the big book says. You can like this or don't like it. I didn't like it, but I did it. Now I like it. But at the beginning, I didn't like it because there was a piece of me didn't want to follow directions. But I did follow directions, and I did get the results that were promised. So are you willing? Are you willing? follow these directions. And if you are, um, then in despair, you're going to try to find out what, uh, what is the solution, and it's going to tell you what the solution is. Now, in the chapter more about alcoholism, and some people disagree, some people this is step, say step one, I go with Joe and Charlie at step two, but the bottom line, it is talking about mental session. As Dr. Shilkworth mentioned, it is one of the two components of what is the problem? I can get it, and I'm fine with people that say that is the problem. I also get it with Joe and Charlie. Um, basically, uh, came to believe that a power greater in ourselves can restore us to sanity. Well, that means you're insane, and that's part of step two. So um, we can agree with both statements. Uh, but in there, they will cover in depth mental obsession, and which is the second component of step one. So let me just read, I want to go here to page, the bottom of page 84. I want to read this because some people, one of the things that I, I've come to, as I say this book, there are promises in this book. They tell you what the problem is in step one. They tell you what the solution is in step two. In step three, they tell you what the problem is. They give you the example of the actor. And then they, t- they give you promises. In step four. They, they do that, and then they give you promises. Step five, they give you promises. Um, we here, of course, we know eight and nine, very famous. You know, we have the promises here on 80, 80, 83, 84. But it's step 10 is promise, step 11, step 12. So at the time we get to step 10, and we're working step 10, this is what the big book promises. Promises will be our relationship with food. doesn't say maybe. doesn't say sometimes. No, it's promise that it will definitely occur each and every time. And we need then to do exactly what it says or we've not had, something's not working. Does the promise tell us this promise works? So here's what it says about, it says alcohol here. So I'll just read it, but in your mind, change it to food. This is our relationship with food. Now, remember, the physicality has been taken care of because what happens, and this is my experience, when I work with people, um, people will go through detox, withdraw, 
they'll hit the half-life and then, because each day it gets stronger and stronger, the compulsion, because the amount of food is less and less, it eats the half-life. And at that point, it becomes less and less the compulsion until eventually there is no physical allergy in the craving because you've got, you've weathered the storm two to three weeks. And some though I've had, where they've had caffeine and that tends to go three to four weeks because they have to also come off caffeine because they're eating and drinking things. And that then is a part of their abstinence. Um, but once that's done, you will never ever have physical You will never have a craving because you never put it in your body to have a craving. So that ceases to exist. The physical now is taken care of and the mental obsession is in the rest. But this is what the big book says in step 10. And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. Remember, insanity was step two. Now we've got sanity now, step 10. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recall from it as if from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we'll find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude towards liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We've not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. So it's telling us that now, at this point, not only do we not have a physical allergy and a craving, because that was taken care of step one, now by the time we're doing 10 and then with 11 and 12 every day, what it means is we will not think we eat compulsively. It says it just comes. It's a miracle. We, we don't even try to remove it. It just happens. Now, what would cause it to just happen when you weren't trying to get it to not happen, which is the mental obsession? Well, what happened was you stopped trying to get rid of the mental obsession because you can't get rid of it. There are two deaths in program, two deaths. The first death is death of food, the food that we were eating, the death of those ingredients specifically, those food ingredients, the death of those occurred in step one. I, I mean death. They're gone. You don't put it in your body anymore. That's over. That is done, and that's your first death. You will have some grief. It'll be painful, but you survive. Again, two to three weeks, four weeks max, it's over. There's a second death, though. The second death is the death of self-will. And to remind of 45 minutes. Great, thanks. So the death of self-will, now you can't get rid of self-will with self-will. Self-will will not kill itself. It never will kill you. It will, it can't happen. So what do we know? We know that somehow it has to go away. And this program, if you work each of the steps, guess what? When you go and say, yes, God, you're going to be running the show here. Okay, step three. A little self-will is removed. Not because you made it move. You just followed the directions and a little chipped off. When you did four, a little more self-will. You did it the way it was supposed to be done. Five, a little more. Six, more. Seven, eight, nine, ten. It ends up that the self-will has died because what's happened is self-will, which is the center, the core of who I was. Everything had to be what I wanted, when I wanted, how I wanted it. Because it was too scary not to have it. Because I demanded it. Because I wanted it my way. And I had, that had to be removed, and in its place became God's will. How do we define God? Remove and puts in God's will. Now the core of me is God's will. The personality that made me an addict is not there anymore. Now, don't get me wrong. I can get up and tomorrow and be just like a jerk, and what in the world happened to me? It can easily come back, because even though they're dead, we have the ability to resurrect them back. So, but what does it say in the big book? As long as we keep in fit spiritual condition, they never, ever come back. Because we're moving closer to God. Step 11, we must improve our conscious contact with God. If we improve our conscious contact with God, there's no oxygen for the disease to live. It, it doesn't have anything. It can't function because we get closer to God. As we get closer to God, 
we again have more of God's will through through us, and we continue to have more of God's will. So there is no ability for the disease to practice. That's the answer. But first we have to accept, this is like the cement slab of a home. If you do not have a good cement slab, all the steps built on, on top of it will not last. It has to be the foundation and which the rest follow. Step one, we emit 100% with absolute perfection. We're powerful food that our lives unmanageable. As I said, the first half is step one, the unmanageability. That will be covered in steps two through 12. So uh, let me close with that. And if you have any questions, I'd be welcome to whatever you would like to ask me. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ruth, so much for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us today. We will now be transitioning into a question and answer segment. I'd like to introduce Michael, who is our moderator for today. Thank you, Julie. Hi, everybody. My name is Michael, and I'm a compulsive eater and your moderator for today. Please continue to send your questions to me in the topic of the doctor's opinion um, using the chat. Uh, and we'll try to get through as many questions as we can today. And Ruth, thank you so much for being with us. And I have been collecting questions. Here's the first one for you, Ruth. If the body of the compulsive overeater is different, like an allergy, how do I find out what to eat? I get so afraid to eat anything. It feels like everything sets me off. Yeah, as I kind of explained, you've got to find out what are your ingredients. What are the ingredients that when you take that ingredient in, regardless of the food, when you take that ingredient in, you have this reaction where you cannot moderate. You cannot stop when you want to. Or if you've now sworn off and said, I'll never do it again, you can't keep your word. What are those ingredients? I can tell you the food industry has learned that there are three. One is added sugars, artificial sweeteners. Because the taste bud, my taste bud doesn't have high enough IQ to know if it's artificial sweetener or it's added sugars. So I cannot do any, I can't do them and I haven't done them for 36 years. I cannot put that in my body. I don't care. There have been a lot of new products coming out in the last 36 years and I don't need to try them and add them to my food list. I already know if it's got the ingredient in it, I can't do it. Another is added salt. It does not mean salt naturally occurring. We have to have salt in our body. Sugar, we don't have to ever have to eat sugar for the rest of our life. But uh, we need seven to 800 milligrams. We can do 1,200. In the U.S., we're over 3,500 milligrams per day. We're taking in three times too much. So again, we usually find that not in the salt shaker, but in these products the food industry makes, processed food, because they're trying to add these three ingredients in. So these added salts, high salts, we can go into the biology, but um, they work together, the sugar, the salts, to get more sugar in, more salt in. They work, they complement each other, just like cocaine and alcohol complement each other. One's an alcohol, one's a depressant. I mean, alcohol's a depressant. Uh, cocaine is a stimulant. They put each other together and do more of each. And the other is certain kinds of fat. Um, there are certain kinds that, uh, you know, again, in the food industry, we again have to have fatty acids and they have to come in our body, but there are others that we never have to have. So um, that's it. I'm going to find out if any of those three, and then I'm going to add another. So to answer your question, find out what are the ingredients you cannot eat ever again, and that's where you start. Thank you. Next question. Um, you mentioned the clock. Um, somebody asked, why is your clock turning backward? <laughs> the reason is because Joe and Charlie did it that way. I remember I, I did this, and it was about 10 or 15 years ago, saying this. Somebody said, why don't go the other direction? I don't know. I just did what I just repeated what they did. You could go at three o'clock and run the other way. Um, it was just the way they laid it out. Um, that's all. No more than that. If you were comfortable and going the other direction, start at three and go go the other way. Go clockwise. Great. Thank you. Next question says, I think you said that after completing the steps, the food problem is solved and will be free from food obsession. I've completed the steps several times and am abstinent from my alcoholic foods. I experience freedom from food cravings and obsession a lot of the time, but I'm not free entirely. Can you talk more about how you experience freedom from cravings permanently? Yeah, one of the things I find that people are putting in a trace amount of their ingredient and not knowing it, just enough to just have that irritation. It's not entire. 
Because once it's entire and there's absolutely nothing left. Now, let's say you're doing it well, 99%, but that 1%, and it can drive you back, all the way back. So uh, what you'll need to do is look at, and in the U.S., I'm not sure about Australia, how they do it, but in the U.S., we have ingredient label. There's a, on the back, it tells us what all the ingredients from the most to the least amount on the ingredient label. Uh, for me, I almost never, ever, ever eat processed food because, again, the food industry is going to put one or more of those three things in it. I already know that because that's what they do. They, they, they manufacture something and call it food with a little bit of food in it, really. Um, so you have to get clean on that. If you read that ingredient label and you don't know what it means, you can't eat it. You don't know what it means. In the U.S., they'll say natural flavors, and they claim it's, uh, it's an industry secret. They spent money to research it, and they won't even tell you. So you can't even tell by just, if you read that, you don't even know. Because not even the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, knows. The loophole in our law. So uh, the trace amount. So you're going to have to find out um, if you have any trace. The second thing would be, yeah, if you're not one of us, okay. But if you're just having that irritation, chances are that's the first thing you have to look at. The second, it might be you've missed a little something on one of the subsequent steps. There's something that didn't quite get done that you would need to go and kind of clean it up in a future step that's causing some irritation. Uh, but I always start with step one first, and that's usually the issue. But I, I'd start at one and work with somebody that recovered and then see if, if that's absolutely you are entirely absent, then you've got to figure it out from the, uh, uh, the, the following steps. Great. Thank you. Our next question is, what about behaviors, activities, or processes that are linked to compulsive eating, such as binge watching TV or Netflix or eating while driving? Right. So what I, I do with people, I first start with the food to get it out of the body. I, I have to go in an order. So the very first thing is the food. Now it's completely out of the body. It's done. It's over. It's been two weeks or three weeks. Uh, okay, let's look at our food. Now, now look at our behaviors. Because actually for us, we have a substance and a behavior. There's some things that are only substance. Some are only behavior. But we have both. So yes, I will cover that with them. Uh, I, but it won't, serve us any, it won't serve any good if you still put the food in, still are under the influence, and you change behaviors. You just do, they'll go back to them or do new behaviors to get the food in. So, yes, we do look at behaviors. So, for example, I had one person come in. She said, I only overeat when I watch TV. I said, great. So your absence will include not eating when you watch TV. Her decision was to leave away, and I've never seen her again. Uh, but that was a, a no-brainer. Yeah, there's a lot of things. I, 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 uh, I can do it now, but for years, I don't go in a grocery store if it's time to eat your meal. Because you are now naturally hungry. Do not go in there. There's too much stimuli. Can't do that. Can't do that. I've gone with sponsorees and gone through the grocery store and helped them walk through that grocery store to show them exactly what you were doing and what foods and how to read the labels. And I'll, I'll walk them through that. Another is you might have somebody else has to go to the grocery store and buy your items for you. Uh, don't have the items in your home. That's too stimulating a lot of times. Later you can, but not at the beginning. Always weigh and measure because you got a broken stopper. You don't know when to stop. What is the proper portion size? So you're going to need to weigh and measure. Eventually, you might not need to, but initially you will because you don't know. Your eyeballs look at something and they think that's a portion size and it's really three. So, um, yeah, we cover all the behaviors later once I get that first thing in. And if they don't do that first thing, it won't matter. The rest won't work anyway. Okay. Thank you. Next question. Uh, can you talk more about how improving our conscious contact with God cuts off the oxygen that otherwise otherwise feeds self-will? How does that work practically for you? And what is your daily routine like? Yeah, it's a process. So when I took step three, and of course I was clueless here, but when I took step three and said, God, yeah, you're in charge, it was mostly intellectual. There wasn't a lot of heart in there. When I say heart knowledge, gut, intellect, not intellect, I'm sorry, gut, intuition, um, your imagination, creative part of you, all of that stuff. Um, it has to be done there too. Your heart has to say yes to it. Uh, but with each step, God is now more, it's slowly getting God in that center, that circle. See? And that self-will is getting a little less. Not because I'm trying to get rid of it, but just putting God in the center, even the commitment to do that, starts the process of self-will not being in that circle. And then each step gets less self-will, less self-will, until God 
will is there. And then 10, 11, 12, you can just continue to do your work. So for me, I, I never graduate. Um, I always have something will come up, uh, you know, that tells me I've got to make maybe a slight improvement on, you know, an example would be, I remember once I was, I give my half hour meditation time. Well, I got down to 25 minutes and you say, well, who cares about that? Well, it was just enough to get me a little, a little crazy. So I have to improve. That means not only the time, but the quality of my time with God has to be prayer meditation. It gets deeper and more profound as the longer I'm abstinent. I, I can't put in words, but I, even this past year, year and a half, I've been really working on this and, um, I feel more. I feel more trust and faith. My love of God has increased. Just, just improving the quality. Um, there's a yearning. I believe in, there's a yearning within me to be at one with my God, and um, I had no idea. And so I just continually move towards it. But do the do step eleven work. And there's great work that we didn't cover today, but there's great things there. It tells you exactly prayers to have, meditation. All of that's covered in the big book and more elaborated on in A's 12 and 12. And just follow those directions. Okay. Next question. What is your step 10 practice like? Well, step 10, there's, and the big book is too clear about this. There is a, just a little quick check-in at the end of the night. It only takes now, it takes, takes a few minutes. I mean, I, I pretty well know. Um, and so how has the day been? You know, is there anything that needs to be done? Is there any amends that need to be made? Just kind of noting that. And then I can go to bed and sleep sounder. And when the next day comes up, I have some things to do. But it also ends up, and it mentions here in the book, where um, something will be just out of kilter. I just can tell it right away. Let's say I'm driving, let's an example. I'm driving down uh, the road. And, um, you know, I've left the home late, which is my character defect, and I got to make up a little more time to get there on time. And as I'm driving along, uh, I'm a little restless because, you know, I needed to leave at the proper time. And so I stop and go, you know, what's going on here? Okay, you made a problem here. So we're going to be careful and pay attention, but you're causing yourself to get out of whack. Okay, so I've got to now adjust and say, okay, let's stop that behavior. And, and so I can do it right then. I don't need to wait till the e end of the day to note something. So when I, anything comes up, I can do a quick step 10 inventory right then. What's going on? What have I done? Where am I in alignment? Where are you not getting a, a, that good connection with God? Oh, self-will has kind of started to come in. And I've already done that. So I continue to do that throughout the day and make adjustments. And if I need to do more work on it, I will. So step 10 is really being done all the time for me now um and then just one formal time at the end of the day great our next question i'm a real compulsive overeater can you talk about your experience of addictive food behaviors as i don't have any so-called addictive foods that i have found that i cannot eat in moderation i can only eat three moderate meals a day however extra food always unleashes the disease am i delusional or just uncommon well, first, um, you, I would still take you through the exercise. I've had people say that. And then when we really looked at it, honestly, they found that there was something common in the food or foods they were overeating, um, that they would find that the behavior of overeating was still chasing something in the food. So you'd have to get really, really clean. So still do that. Still do that. Um, because people would say that the key is people would say, you know, I overeat on everything. But once we looked at anything you put on top of it, do you put you have that jacket like it like you always tend to have to salt up all your food before you eat it? Oh, really? How about you just don't uh, do that? Because it might be the salt, not the behavior you're talking about. It may be the ingredient. So when we really look closely, you might find this behavior you're doing is still doing something like putting it in or on food. Um, the famous one is, is nuts. Some people say, I can't eat nuts. And then others find out it's not that they can't eat nuts. It's that they're roasting as they do it here. That makes that sticky surface, surface where they can put on that salt and sugar on the surface of the nut. And thus, it's not the nut. It's the sugar and salt 
and the fats on the surface of the nut that they're chasing. And they say, well, it's a behavior. No, we separated out and found those that never have any of those three ingredients put on the nut. You're never avoiding those nuts. So, again, that's where you have to first look at the, the items and then find, yes, they're behaviors, yeah. Um, but are you, when you say that, do you have seen vegetables where you never, ever have a problem? You don't ever think? Do you think to do the behavior before you do it? Probably. It might be unconscious. And so I'd have to have a talk with you and kind of sort it out. And let's fine-tune that to see if there's something missing in that. And maybe it could be behaviors, but that's very rare. Uh, that it's exclusive behaviors. I find there's an ingredient or ingredient that is the behavior has been is doing it, but the ingredient's still common when you do it. Okay. Uh, we don't have any questions at the moment. Um, so if anybody wants to give us, we still probably have a couple minutes left if somebody would like to submit a question. Uh, if not, I guess I'll turn it back over to you, Julie. Thanks. Thank you, Michael. A reminder that a Design for Living Big Book OA is a daily meeting. We are based out of Melbourne, Australia. The recording from today's workshop will be available from our website, where you can also find out about other upcoming events and speakers. Visit our website at www.ad4l.info. Sorry. www.ad4l.info. Our next monthly speaker series will be held on Saturday, January 8th. The topic is Bill's story. We hope to see you all there. In closing, I would like to thank you all for your service and coming here today. By following the 12 steps, attending meetings regularly, using the tools of OA, we are changing our lives. You will find hope and encouragement in Overeaters Anonymous. To the newcomer, we suggest attending at least six different meetings to learn the many ways OA can help you. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. Please remember our commitment to honor each other's anonymity. What you hear here, whom you see here, when you leave here, let it stay here. Let us all reach out by phone or email to newcomers, returning members, and each other. Together, we get better. To close the meeting, will Francine please unmute and read the promises? If we are painstaking, oh, Francine, compulsive overeater. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of hopelessness, no, sorry, that feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook outlook upon life will change fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us we will suddenly realize that god is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves are these extravagant promises we think not they are being fulfilled among us sometimes quickly sometimes slowly they will always materialize if we work for them. <laughs>